Uh, thanks, Leolam. Let me pray as we come to look at God's word together. Father God, we, yeah, we do thank you that we can be here together this morning. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us now to yeah, just have our minds uh, focused, that we might hear from you. Lord, that we might be encouraged in our, our faith today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I thought I'd begin with a poem today, um, but before you conclude that I'm more cultured or well-read than is true, I'll admit that I heard this poem watching uh, The Crown on Netflix this week. So it's a poem that uh, Margaret Thatcher quotes uh, when the Queen asks her about growing opposition to some of the reforms that she's making as Prime Minister. Uh, it's called No Enemies. Uh, it goes like this. Uh, it says, you have no enemies, you say. Alas, my friend, the boast is poor. He who has mingled in the fray of duty that the brave endure must have made foes. If you have none, small is the work that you have done. You've hit no traitor on the hip. You've dashed no cup from perjured lip. You've never turned the wrong to right. You've been a coward in the fight. There you go. Who's watching The Crown at the moment? A few people. Good on you. Excellent. Uh, your wife. Uh, so the poem uh, is written by Scottish poet um, Charles Mackay, who was part of a movement campaigning for the rights of working class people in England in the 19th century. And really, I think it expresses there how whenever something of significance is undertaken, well, then we can expect to encounter opposition. Now, friends, of course, that is true of God's work in the world. Uh, I mean, is there anything more significant than the work that God is doing, reconciling the world to himself through the message about his son, Jesus? And so as his kingdom advances, well, it does so against opposition. And uh, really, I think you only need to scan through the Bible to see that. I mean, think of some of the greats of the Old Testament, um, Abraham, uh, Joseph, King David. You know, God worked greatly through them, but so often it was in the face of conflict and suffering and, and opposition. And then in the New Testament, I mean, travel with Paul on his missionary journeys and see the opposition that he faces, imprisonments and riots, uh, mobs cheering him, insults, uh, rumours about his theology, attempts on his life, uh, opposition to his message and ministry is constant. Uh, Paul himself wrote this, he said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, he's very realistic about what it is that we should expect as followers of Jesus. Um, when writing to Timothy, he says, in fact, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, which, of course, is consistent with the words of Jesus. I mean, not long before his crucifixion, he said to his disciples that a slave is not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. Now, friends, maybe you're wondering, you know, maybe this was not the sermon you wanted to hear when you got in the car to drive here this morning, but I think, you know, this morning it's, it's good for us to have a right expectation, isn't it? Uh, being a follower of Jesus Christ in this world means that you will face opposition as you seek to follow him and live for him. Uh, opposition is what is faced by anything that is worthwhile and of eternal value. 
And this is what we see going on in our passage here today in Nehemiah. Last week, if you're with us, uh, in chapter 3, we were looking at how all of God's people were working side by side to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But as we come now into chapter 4, we start to see, I think, some of the drama and the issues that went on during that rebuilding. And uh, that continues in the next couple of chapters, but really prominent here in chapter 4 is this theme of opposition. Now, remember that at this point in the, the big story of the Bible, uh, what the people are working on here, it's not just another building project. It's not like us doing renovations or extensions to our church building. Uh, no, what the people here are building, it, this is God's city. Uh, at this point in salvation history, this is the place where God's temple is. Uh, it's where his dwelling place is. If you could talk of you know, about God having a home on earth, well, this is his home and his throne. It's the central place of God's plans and purposes for the world. And we thought about that a little bit last week, about how the people here are involved in this holy work of rebuilding God's kingdom. And really, I think if chapter 3 described for us that the building work happened, well, chapters 4 to 6 then tell us how the building work happened. Um, we're only looking at chapter 4 today, but as you read through these next chapters, well, you kind of wonder how the building work happened at all. Because all the way through, there's just one threat after another. And so the first thing to see here today, the first heading I've got there in your newsletter, is how God's people are at war. Let me read from chapter 4 again. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. <clears throat> It says, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. And so right from the start here, we see that the rebuilding that the Jews uh, are doing, well, we see their enemies here giving them a hard time. Uh, we're told there are those two guys, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, who ridiculed the builders and their, their feeble-looking wall. Um, but did you notice, I mean, who else is there giving strength to their mocking? And look again at the end of verse 1. It says that Sanballat ridiculed the Jews in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria. See, Sanballat has a foreign army behind him. This is not just two guys being annoying. It's serious opposition. And as the walls get higher and higher, well, the opposition gets more sinister. It's a bit, I think, like play, uh, boys in the playground at school. At recess, it's sort of like teasing and mocking. But then at lunchtime, they start to plan how they're going to beat you up after school. So look at verse uh, 7 of chapter 4. It then says, When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So we see this rebuilding, it didn't come easy, did it? Now the Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the men of Ashdod, they're all scheming against them to fight them. 
And it's very similar language, I think, to what we see from the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Now, just after Jesus restores, the, uh, restores Lazarus by raising him from the dead, well, it says that the chief priests and the Pharisees plotted together to take his life. Now, as well as this outward hostility from enemies that's going on, it's also the work of rebuilding itself that's starting to get on top of the people because there's just so much rubble and the sheer volume of work was becoming nearly too much. So verse 10 of chapter 4, it says, Meanwhile, the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. So it's this huge task. And it feels like the work is nearly too much. The laborers are over it. They're saying that it can't be done. And if that feels like it's getting too much, well, then the enemies up the ante again. So in verse 11, we see that they now plan to kill. It says, also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. And some of the Jews who nearby hear that uh, and hear that plan, well, they now sort of come running like terrified kids in verse 12. It says, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever, they, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Now, I hope that uh, just as we've gone over that again, I hope you get the picture. It's a frightening time, isn't it? And it's hard work. They've got a demolition site for a workplace. The workers are weary and frightened. There's enemies all around them, big enough and angry enough to kill them. And in the face of that kind of opposition, well, it'd be just about enough to call it a day, wouldn't it? And I wonder if maybe you feel like that sometimes in your life as a Christian, especially when we face opposition, which I think we all face in maybe in different ways. Of course, in some countries around the world, there is very hostile persecution and a daily threat for Christians losing their lives for their faith in Jesus. Thankfully, that's not the sort of opposition facing us at present here in Australia. I think the opposition we face is often much more the insults and the ridicule that we see in this passage. Uh, notice Nehemiah's prayer in verse 4. He says, hear us, uh, our God, for we are despised. And that is something that really hasn't changed at all. We will be despised as we align ourselves with Jesus in this world. And, of course, that's not easy, is it? To know that at school or at work or in your family that you'll be, that you'll be mocked if you speak up, or when you know that you'll be excluded or laughed at, it can be very tempting to just keep our heads down. And I think the danger for us then is if we begin to compromise. Now, if the approval of those around us begins to be matter more to us than serving God and his kingdom, well, we might start to feel here like the builders that it's just too hard, that the work is too difficult. Now, I do also want to mention something that has just come up this week. Uh, maybe you've heard in the news that there's a, there's a bill that's currently before the Victorian Parliament, which from my reading, at least, uh, poses a very big threat for Christians and religious freedom. 
Uh, it's been dubbed the anti-conversion bill. And it seems to me that it would make it unlawful uh, for churches and religious bodies to openly teach and proclaim a traditional, or you might say a conservative view of sexuality. Um, Neil Foster is someone who I've been reading about this. He's a Christian law professor in Newcastle. And he gives the example that the bill in its current form could make it illegal for, say, a Bible study leader to counsel someone who comes to them asking for advice about God's intention for sex, says that they could be liable under this bill if they assert the traditional Christian understanding that sex is to be practised only between a male and female in marriage. Now, the bill won't be debated until sometime in the new year, um, and hopefully there will be discussion and it won't, be, won't go through in that broad form that it currently is. But friends, I want to say this is very serious. And there has already been things like this happen, um, I think not to the same extent, but also in, already in Queensland and in the ACT. Um, if you want to follow these kind of things up, I'd really recommend following a, a website or a Facebook page called Freedom for Faith. Uh, that's a, they're doing some very good work in this area in Australia. Uh, Freedom for Faith. Um, but I think, look, that's just one example. It's just come up this week. Uh, but I think a very serious example of the opposition facing God's people right here in Australia. Because the reality is that as we seek to live for Christ in this world, well, opposition will come our way. And that's because ultimately what we are caught up in is a battle. It's a spiritual battle. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, in saying that, you know, we shouldn't imagine that people that we meet or governments who oppose us are servants of Satan in a direct sense. Rather, what Satan does is he blinds and he manipulates and he deceives and he uses whatever means possible to stop and destroy the work of God's kingdom being built. So that's the first thing we need to be aware of, that we're caught up in this battle. So how is it that we should respond to opposition? Well, point two, what we see next is Nehemiah, uh, in Nehemiah is God's people at work. I think the primary work that we see them doing here is prayer and perseverance. Uh, so the key verse I want you to notice here is just verse 9. Uh, in the face of this opposition, see what Nehemiah says. He says, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Now notice two things going on there. Firstly, prayer. Now, should we pray exactly the same way that Nehemiah does in this passage? Uh, look at his prayer in verse 4. I'll read that again. He says, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now, friends, is that how we should pray? Is that how you should pray for your family member who gives you a hard time about your faith, that God would 
throw insults back on their own heads. Is that how we should pray for the Victorian government and those introducing this recent bill, that they would get what they deserve? Now, in one sense here, I think it is a, it's kind of a prayer for justice, you know, a prayer that God would not allow his opponents to succeed. And it is right for us to pray that wickedness would be restrained and the governments would rule in such a way that we can live peaceably as Christians. But I think we want to say as well that as we stand on the other side of the cross to Nehemiah, well, then we have seen something of God's dealing with humanity that Nehemiah didn't see. And we've seen how at the cross God deals both justly with sin and wickedness, but also treats people, treats his enemies in ways that they do not deserve. He extends grace. He extends mercy. And we live now in this time when God's righteous judgment on sin is being held back in order to give people time to repent so that they might receive his mercy and salvation. And so I think while we're praying on the one hand, Father, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, well, we'll also pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, that's what Jesus modelled for us as he was mocked and as he was killed by his enemies. It's what he taught his disciples. He said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. And so there, I think, is a challenge for us today in the face of opposition. But this is what we see God's people doing. They pray, they commit the work to God, and then we also see that they persevere, they get on with doing God's work. Uh, <clears throat> we see here that the, the, uh, the labourers, they keep building. Uh, so verse uh, 13, see how they do that? Uh, Nehemiah says, Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the ex uh, exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. And then jump down to verse 16. <clears throat> it says, from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armour. The officers posted themselves behind all of the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and they held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. I think there's a great scene to imagine, isn't it? And I did, you know, I did like a Google image search on Nehemiah because I was going to put some of them on the screen for you, but I didn't get around to it. But most of them have, you know, pictures of they're holding a trowel in one hand while they work and holding a, holding a sword in another. But I think this is also kind of a, a picture of how God's work advances in the world. That his kingdom is built through prayer and his people persevering in their kingdom building work. And this is something that we see over and over again in the Bible, how both God's sovereignty and our responsibility work together, that both God is in control and so we pray, and also that what we do matters. Both of those are true. And I think that while that's sort of hard for us to hold together in our minds at times, there's, there's great comfort in that. It means that we can commit our work and the work of our church to God in prayer, 
And then as we work at it, as we do the good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do, then we can leave the results up to him. Now, it means on the one hand that we can't completely mess things up and there's comfort in that because God is in control. But it also means that we have real motivation and, and real incentive to serve God and his kingdom because he uses our work for his glory. And see, right now we read in 2 Corinthians, it says that God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. In that passage, it says that all of this is from God as God makes his appeal through us. So that is how God is building his kingdom today. He's doing it through us. He's doing it through his church, through you and me, as we make it our purpose to know and to live and to share his grace with those around us. And I think we see here in Nehemiah a good model for us, prayer and perseverance in ministry as we together participate in God's kingdom building work. And so we see here in this passage, we see opposition. Uh, we see in the face of it, God's people nearly ready, ready to give up. But I think in the midst of that, the final thing for us to see today is how Nehemiah here points the people and, and points us to the source of strength for that kingdom building work, which is God himself. Uh, you know, in lots of ways here, Nehemiah acts as a very practical and wise leader. But maybe the most important thing he does amid all of that strategizing to protect the people and to keep the building work going is he reminds them of the, the God who they belong to. Take a look at verse 14. It says, when the people are fearing for their lives, this is the, the instruction he gives them. He says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And friends, isn't that what we need to do as well? To remember the Lord. To remember that he is our God. Remember that he is the God who is powerful to overcome his enemies. To remember that he frustrates the plans of his enemies so that his kingdom will advance. To remember that he hears our prayers. To remember that he fights for his people. To remember that his commitment to his people meant coming alongside them, meant suffering with them meant dying for them so that we could be reconciled to God and be part of that kingdom. Friends, that's the God that we labour for. <clears throat> and as our labour for him is of eternal significance, then we can expect that it will be met with opposition. But let us keep doing that work. And as we're reminded from that reading in 1 Peter, we do it because we know that as we participate now in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus, we will be overjoyed on the day when he comes again, when his glory is revealed. Let me pray for us as we uh, reflect on those things this week. <clears throat> Our Father God, we do ask that you would uh, strengthen us as your people. Lord, uh, as we remember who you are, as we remember the gospel that you've made known to us, Lord, fill us with joy and, and peace in believing. 
And Father, I pray that you would be with us this week as we seek to follow Jesus and to live as his ambassadors in the world. And we ask those things in Jesus' name. Amen.